Almost exactly a month ago, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth took a four-day weekend to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee, the 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II's accession to the throne. I would have liked to have been there. Maybe I'll make it over for her 100th anniversary. Well, there are many columns and articles written about the Queen, and nearly all of them mentioned her life of service and her example to the world of life spent in service. A life spent in service that was an inspiration to others to serve. 21 years ago, the Queen surprised the royal watchers when she did something she had never done, something unusual for her. In her Christmas message for the year 2000, she spoke of her faith in Jesus Christ publicly for the first time, I suppose since her confirmation. She said in 2000, too many of us, I'm sorry, too many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. There was much speculation. The queen had not been given to speaking much about her own life at all, let alone her faith in Christ. But she's continued mentioning her faith in Christ every Christmas message since. In 2014, she said, For me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life. A role model of reconciliation and forgiveness, he stretched out his hands in love, acceptance, and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek to respect and value all people of whatever faith or none. In 2016, she said, billions of people now follow Christ's teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them because Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love. Of course, I don't know for sure, and I doubt I'll ever have the chance to ask her, but I would not be surprised if one of the impacts of Jesus' example on her life is his life of service despite his royal stature. He is the messianic king, the king of the universe, but he lives a life of service to others and he inspires others to serve as well. And that is what we see going on in the gospel reading this morning. Jesus, the messianic king, sends out his followers to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand and in the process to serve others in his name. Let's start with that location, location, location thing and look first at the location of this passage in Scripture. Where is this passage? What comes before it and what comes after it? And what is this passage doing here? Those are the questions we ask when we look at location in Scripture. Luke's gospel begins by telling us who Jesus is. From his miraculous birth to his own miracles, we learn that he is divine, God incarnate. Then Jesus tells us what he expects from us in the Beatitudes. And then he begins to tell us and show us what to do. In chapter 9, the reading today is from chapter 10. In chapter 9, he appoints the 12 disciples. And he gives them a power and authority in his name to cast out dealings and heal the sick. And see, if we had stopped with chapter 9, with the call of the disciples, we would come away thinking, oh, Jesus wants the clergy to do this stuff. But in chapter 10, our passage this morning, Jesus sends out 72 of his other followers, not just the special 12 disciples, 
to go forth into the world and carry the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is telling us that the task of carrying the gospel, the good news, belongs to all his followers, not just a special few. And the gospel, the good news, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word translated gospel means good message in Greek. In English, we use the word gospel because it was first translated into Anglo-Saxon as good spiel, a good story. That Greek word literally means good news, but it means more than just that literal meaning of good news. It means important news. It means big news, news that you need to hear because once you hear it, it will change the rest of your life. We have a, a, a first century inscription, inscription, inscription in Greek found in the city of Prene in Turkey today, which reads, it starts off, this is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Doesn't that even sound a bit shocking to the ear? The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It was the proclamation that Octavian Caesar Augustus had seized total power in what had been the Roman Republic and from now on was to be regarded as the, new Roman, as the emperor of the new Roman Empire. It's an interesting statement and I expect to hear more about that later because I'm still working through what that means for our understanding of, of the gospel. But certainly it's big news. It's important news. It's news that's going to change everybody's life forever because now we have a new king, a new emperor. News that there's a new king. And Jesus' news is that the kingdom of God is coming and it's at hand. The good news that will change your life forever is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus' followers are told to carry this news out to those who had not heard it. Now the instructions Jesus gives his followers followers carrying this message need not be followed in detail today, I don't think, but they lay out principles for us. Jesus, by the way, sends out followers later on uh, with a different set of instructions. So the instructions are not to be followed in detail, but to give us principles about how to carry out this message. And the first thing we notice is that no one is sent alone, but they are sent in a team. Jesus' message here is we can't do everything on our own, we need to work together as a team. You know, for some time now, I was first surprised, and then I admit a bit concerned that we were gathering so many members of the clergy here at Servants. First, I was surprised, why are there so many of us coming here? At one point when our attendance was very low during the pandemic, I looked out and I did some counting, and 15% of the attendants were clergy persons. I mean, that's a bit top-heavy. I started to get a bit concerned. Maybe some of us, and I included me in that, maybe some of us need to find something else to do, you know? I, I don't know, maybe a church plant or something. Why are there so many of us here? Well, now I know. Now I know why God sent so many clergy to us, because Father Alex is moving on from uh, devotion to this parish. And I'm so grateful God sent so many clergy to us. Because in this time of transition, we have amongst us on our clergy team as perfect a blend of gifts as I can imagine. I went through and started thinking about delegating authority, and by the end of doing all that, everything was covered by people with the gifts to do that. It was amazing. And we also have a wonderful collection of lay teams here who do ministry here at Servants. 
Father Bob's uh, chief task right now is collecting and sometimes writing job descriptions for each of the teams here. The idea is that if you're interested in joining a, a, a team and, and working together in ministry here at Servants, you can find out exactly what's involved. Does it require any training? How many, how many Sundays a month am I committing? How much time each Sunday am I committing? And, 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 and you decide if you want to make that commitment. We want you to know up front what's expected. We don't invite you to join, we don't want to invite you to join a team and then spring a bunch of stuff on you. We want you to know this will be one Sunday a month for 30 minutes and well, are you willing to do that? Or maybe you can just say, I don't know even what the teams are. Maybe you can take that collection and skim them and find the ministry opportunity you didn't even know we had here that kind of catches your eye and you think maybe I could do something like that. And sometimes you run into a need and we have to ask our volunteers specifically. And oddly enough, would you believe it, we have had that situation arise this Sunday that I can use as an example. Imagine that. Our children's ministry is in need of volunteers. We are losing some children workers as some of our college students are moving on in the fall. We especially right now need nursery workers to volunteer. This requires about an hour's commitment on a Sunday morning. You spend time with our youngest parishioners and you uh, are with them until they're able to move on and become young learners. And this is an acute need, especially on July 17th and July 24th, because these are Sundays that are covered by the eight days that our diocesan summer camp covers that week. And so that first Sunday and the second Sunday, we need nursery workers to be blunt about it. If we don't have somebody volunteer, we won't have a nursery on July 17th and July 24th. I haven't been given a list, and I don't want this to sound like a guilt trip, but I know that there's some who committed to nursery work a long time ago and have since retired and stepped back. If you wanted to come out of retirement for one week, we could use you for that one week. And if you think of coming out of retirement for only a Sunday, that's all I'm asking, please let Kim Harris know because on the 17th and 24th, we won't have a nursery if we don't have workers. Our children's church also needs workers that last for about 45 minutes or so when Father Michael is preaching, usually less when I'm preaching. And there's already a teacher who's prepared a lesson. All you're doing is helping with the activities, making sure that the children are paying attention and that kind of thing. And you, and you watch your church, the children as they learn about who Jesus is and what he can do in their lives. And again, you can check with Mrs. Kim and find out exactly what's required for that. I told her I would work that into a sermon illustration. Artfully or inartfully, there it is. But certainly teams are important to us in ministry. No one carries the full load. And if you're involved in ministry here at Servants and you feel like you're carrying the, f- the full load, please come and talk to us. We don't want you to feel that you are burning out. Well, the first thing Jesus does is he sends them out in, in pairs. That's an indication that we work together as a team. And closely related to this is Jesus' next command. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Two weeks ago, Father Bob reminded us that in the book of Revelation, uh, we're, we're told that in the last days, the kingdom of God will include a huge multitude of every nation and tongue and tribe. It'll be like sand on the seashore and stars in the sky, this huge international gathering, and that's going to require thousands and hundreds of thousands of Christians to carry the message that the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is near. And that's going to require more than church attendance to accomplish 
Not all of us are called to every ministry, but Jesus here gives a call to all of his disciples to one ministry, and that is to pray to the Lord of the harvest to stir up the hearts of those called to carry out this message and for others to provide the resources for them to do so. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to find laborers and also to find your own place of labor. Then Jesus gives these words of comfort. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Thanks, Jesus. So um, why do you suggest we take with us to protect ourselves from these wolves, to provide for ourselves in this dangerous mission? And Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Lambs in the midst of wolves. This is a dangerous mission. And Jesus gives to our ears the worst instructions for a dangerous journey. Don't take a backpack. No extra socks. Don't tuck a couple of 20s in your back pocket. No cash. Nothing. You'll be utterly dependent upon God and upon those whom God calls to assist you. And again, I don't think we need to follow this instruction in detail. Okay, this is for a particular group that he's teaching a particular message, but the principle applies to us, and that is that God will provide. God will provide your needs. And then Jesus gives us an odd instruction. Greet no one on the road. Now, this certainly does not mean to be rude and ignore people or to be discourteous and disrespectful to people. And here's where a knowledge of our location and culture can be useful in interpreting scripture. Because greetings in the ancient Near East, as I'm told in the Middle East today, can quickly become very long, complex affairs. Where have you come from, stranger? I come from Nazareth. And how was the weather when you left? Hot and dry. What a coincidence. It has been hot and dry here as well. In Nazareth, there is a leather tanner named Jacob. Why, yes, there is. A good man too. Ah, my cousin has a wife. His wife, Jacob, the tanner, is her uncle. Ah, you've had a cousin marry into a fine family. Well, someone who knows the uncle of my cousin's wife must come and have lunch with me, and so on. Jesus isn't instructing his followers to be rude or to ignore people but to avoid situations where they'll be distracted from the mission, from carrying the message. How easy it is to be distracted by things and by things that are around us. How hard it is to discern where to put our time and effort in ministry. So where will the followers of Jesus find lodging and food? They'll find it the same places that Jesus did. For his three years of ministry, Jesus was fully funded by those who responded to him in faith, who received him and his words. Jesus gives elaborately detailed instructions here that, again, I don't think we need to follow, follow carefully. But I don't think, I don't think, but the point is that God, the principle is that God will provide for those who are carrying this message. So far, we have seen that we can't work by ourselves and we can't take care of ourselves. We can't work by ourselves, and we can't take care of ourselves. Wow. What a message for Americans to receive right before July 4th, Independence Day. 
And for our Canadian brothers and sisters, and Barbara, if you're watching from home, happy Canada Day, belatedly. But tomorrow, Americans celebrate Independence Day. Independence. Self-reliance. My wife and I have a plan to to take us off the grid, to be self-reliant. But you know, in the back of our minds, it's kind of nice to know that we can always flip the breaker in case we need to and go back on the grid. Our self-sufficiency, the self-sufficient farmer. Well, you can't be a self-sufficient farmer if you say, I'm only going to take care of what I grow on my property and that's going to feed me and you start breeding your hogs together, eventually you're going to end up with six-legged hogs and nobody's got time for that. You've got to at least rely on a neighbor to go trade hogs every once in a while and expand the gene pool or else you've got problems. You see, you can't live on your farm all by yourself and be self-sufficient. You have to have neighbors around to, 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 to help As Anglican priest John Donne said, no man is an island entire to himself. We must rely on God and rely on others as they are moved by God to provide for us. Then Jesus gives warnings. The first warning is that the message will not be received by everyone. And that in fact some people in some entire cities will not receive the message. None of us likes rejection, but Jesus warns us that this is a real possibility. Christian ministry can be unpopular and even dangerous work. In some parts of the world today, it can be deadly work. And we aren't talking about those Christians who face rejection because they're jerks. We're talking about Christians who face rejection because of their message that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, and that the kingdom of God is at hand. I send you out as lambs amongst wolves, remember. Jesus says, not everyone will want your message. In some places, the entire town will reject you. And Jesus adds, you are to accept the rejection. But warn those who reject you that the kingdom of God is near. Keep proclaiming the message even to those who reject you. This is a great picture of God's grace. When the message is rejected, move on. But in moving on, keep proclaiming that the message is still true and that there's still time to receive it, to repent, to turn around and seize hold of the truth of the message, that the kingdom of God is at hand, it is near, it's at hand, you can still grab a hold of it. So Jesus warns of rejection, of at least from a temporary perspective, what might look like ministry failure. And he tells his followers, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus warns us of ministry failure. But he also warns of ministry success. The 72 return full of excitement. From our passage, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus warns them not to let it go to their heads. Yeah, Jesus says, uh, speaking of demons, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Even an angel can be so full of spiritual pride that it can lead to a fall. And in a flash of lightning, pride can lead us to a fall. Now Jesus affirms that what they are telling, what they are telling him is true. 
He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That should be the point of glory, that your names are written in heaven. Glory and not, not in what you've done and what you've accomplished, but in what God has done and accomplished for you. Sir James Simpson, a medical doctor and a chemist who uh, was famous for the explorations that led to using chloroform in surgery, reducing pain in the world by however much that must have been, was once asked late in his life, as he made all these biochemical discoveries, he was asked, what has been your greatest discovery? And he said, my greatest discovery is that Christ is my savior. I hope that's your greatest discovery you ever make, that Christ is your savior that your names are written in heaven, not to glory in what you've done and what you've accomplished, but in what God has done and accomplished for you and Jesus. Jesus begins this passage with a call for prayer for laborers to go into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why pray earnestly? Because the harvest is plentiful. When the harvest is plentiful, you have to move fast. Because if you let the harvest just sit in the field, it will rot, it will mold, it will all go to waste. Yet Jesus has not put this burden on his followers and on their efforts. He does not tell them they must accomplish a set goal to tell eight people a day about the kingdom of God. He tells them what to do, but he does not tell them they must do it better than they did last time or with more effort than they used last time because their names are already written in heaven, already written in the Lamb's book of life. They're to proclaim the kingdom, but they don't have to build it on their own. They don't have to strive to produce it, to conjure it up out of somewhere. All they must do is proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand They don't have to build it or produce it. All they have to do is proclaim that it's at hand. And this is why grace is so liberating. We're not carrying the load ourselves. I heard an interview with a a priest and the departing dean at Trinity Seminary, Laurie Thompson. And he said that early in his preaching career, an, an uh, an older Christian had come to him and said, I'd like to talk to you about your preaching. And he said, okay. And he says, well, your sermons are awfully musty. And he said, what do you mean? I write a fresh sermon every week. And he says, no, what I mean is you're always telling us what we must do. Your sermons are musty. You must do this. You must do that. You must do that. You're not, you're not letting us rest in what God has already accomplished. And he said, that just spoke to him Immediately, because he himself kept thinking, I must do this, I must do that. Rest in what God has accomplished. Yes, there are things we must do. But success does not depend upon us and our mustiness. God has done the work. And what he calls us to do is to proclaim what he has accomplished and that his kingdom is at hand. In Jesus' name, amen.